This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Joshua Ferris discusses his new collection, The Dinner Party. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks ahead to Book Expo and Book Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. What's happening in hardcover nonfiction, Mark? Slow today, but... um, Big names, nevertheless, number six, Democracy, Stories from the Long Road to Freedom by Condoleezza Rice. She was the National Security Advisor and then Secretary of State in uh, George W. Bush's administration. And this is her take on democratic success stories and failures across the globe. And our review, we say uh, Rice could be expected to provide unique insights into the challenges currently facing democracy worldwide. Instead, she blandly avers that the overall trajectory is worth celebrating, despite her own description of Russia as a failed democratic experiment. So uh, that's at number six. Number 15, Jackie's Girl, My Life with the Kennedy Family. This is by Kathy McKeon, who talks about her 13 years of working with uh, Jackie Kennedy beginning in 1964, shortly after the assassination of JFK, um, and uh, up through their move to uh, Fifth Avenue in New York City. So that's at number 15. And then at number 19, David Garrow. We've got a starred review of this book, Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. Uh, he was the author of the uh, critically acclaimed and best-selling Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And here he recounts uh, Obama's intensely uh, political life story up to his 2008 election to the presidency. And this is already from his childhood. So this is a, um, a big book, uh, nearly 1,500 pages. Wow. Um, but um, we say casual readers may well find the level of detail here overpowering, but political history buffs will be fascinated, and thus the star. And that's what we got. That's what we got. That's it. There's a lot happening in hardcover fiction. Um, At uh, number seven, we have A Dog's Way Home by W. Bruce Cameron. Mm. We don't have a review of this, but um, if you uh, saw A Dog's Purpose in theaters or picked up the book, um, this is more of the same. It's about a dog who's uh, sent to live 400 miles away from his person and um, decides that, nope, his person is who he wants to be with. And he goes across the 400 miles to find his way home so um dog books always big always big and especially these uh you know loyalty (laughs) stories um and uh and no surprise that this is up there on the best yes our kids read the first one uh well that dog's purpose was based Mm -hmm. on uh and are reading they're reading this one right now so and we have no dog in the house but the uh they've been begging now because of these two (laughs) books so anyway (laughs) Uh, co-branded by the aspca (laughs) and um at uh number eight we have the thirst by yonosbo translated Hmm. 
from the Norwegian by Neil Smith. Uh, this is the 11th book in the Harry Hole series. Um, finds the alcoholic demon ridden, occasionally suicidal Oslo police detective in better shape than usual, hmm. currently sober, teaching college classes, waking up okay. feeling happy. He's happily married. Um, but when he joins the hunt for a serial killer, um, his wife slips into a mysterious coma and slowly the darkness starts creeping oh, back into right. his life. Um, our review says that uh, he is heartbreakingly conflicted, both wants to forget the horrors he's trying to prevent and knows he has to remember them all in all their grim detail. We gave this a starred review. Um, definitely worth picking up for uh, procedural fans. Great. Right below that at number nine is Since We Fell by Dennis Lane. And uh, this is, we say, an expertly wrought character study masquerading as a thriller and features his first ever female protagonist. Um, she's a former star journalist uh, until something snapped during her TV coverage of the devastation in Haiti following the 2009 earthquake. Uh, now she barely leaves her house. Our review says that uh, Lane portrays the frantic hamster wheel of waxing and waning anxiety with with unnerving clarity and there is a conspiracy plot but it doesn't cut the deepest um, that's the intensely intimate portrayal of a woman tormented by her own mind um, so it's uh, definitely worth picking up uh, number 12 we have men without women Haruki Murakami translated from the Japanese uh, this is a collection of new stories where he returns to familiar themes of youthful regrets untenable romantic triangles strange manifestations of sexual frustration and inexplicable often otherworldly happenings while dipping into the lives of seven middle-aged men each caught up in the passions of a mysterious woman and uh yeah, it, this is basically for the murakami fans uh, yeah here you go another murakami right. book just below that at uh, number 16 assassin's fate by robin hobb this is the third final book of the fits and the fool trilogy hobb is one of the stars of epic fantasy um mm. she's way up there we gave this a starred review said it's lusciously complex uh and the themes and threads from the related six duchies series pulled together in a dazzling finale that caps 20 years of writing and more than 15 books uh if you haven't read the series this is not the place to start right. but for those yeah. who've been following it for a couple of decades um, <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is a, a really fitting enthralling ending for the trilogy and the overarching series great and uh, finally, just wanted to make note at number 18 of The Girl Who Knew Too Much by Amanda Quick, um, also known as Jane Ann Krentz or Jane Castle. Uh, Quick is the name that she uses for her historical works. Um, this one is uh, set in 1930s Hollywood. And we say it's an ambitious novel that sparkles with wit and clever plotting. Um, there's a mystery and uh, a little bit of romance. Um, it's got something of everything. And we say it shows the grimy truth between behind Hollywood's glamorous facades and proves that Quick is a titan of historical romantic thrillers. Well, sounds great. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. All right. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joshua Ferris tells us why he writes about unlikable men. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Yvette Johnson, the author of The Song and the Silence, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Joshua Ferris on the line. His new collection of short stories is The Dinner Party. Hi, Josh. So glad you could join us. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. So after three novels, this is your first collection. Tell us a little bit about putting it together. What was that process like? 
Well, there were, let's say, a dozen stories that um, I looked at for inclusion, and they went back probably, I guess the oldest went back about 20 years. Um, That one did not make it. I looked at that for a long time and thought, no, I don't think so. I thought about revising it, but it was too, it was too sort of, it was two things. It was going to be too overwhelming, and then it was going to just sort of destroy whatever peace and quiet it had enjoyed uh, since, since I finished it many, many years ago. So I just left it off. Mm-hmm. The others, um, you know, they needed varying degrees of revision. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by discovering some that met my approval almost all the way through, and then utterly dismayed by the discovery that some needed basically what they call in Hollywood page one rewrites, and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Um, so, you know, it was probably about half and half, and I just kind of went at it and um, and tried to make it fun and and try also to, I tried also to kind of uh, respect the thing that I had been trying for back back then and, and, and not do too much damage to it so that it represented that writer's preoccupations at the time. So some of these uh, short stories have appeared previously, like in The New Yorker. So I'm assuming the ones that you're uh, uh, re- you know, overhauling or reworking or, or even just uh, tidying up are, are ones that you have not had published before? Well, I, I would think that, you know, that's a good assumption to make. I would have thought that as well. Um, it, it didn't turn out that way, uh, which was kind of mind-boggling. I mean, it had gone through a number of revisions on my own. It had gone through revisions uh, that I had spent um, uh, time on uh, f- from my first readers, and then the editor at The New Yorker. And so I felt fairly confident going back to them that they wouldn't need too much changing, but you know, they do. Over time, I guess you get a little distance and you see things that you didn't at the time. So, you know, I ended up changing even those stories that appeared um, in other places. Um, sometimes there were even extensive changes. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's just kind of the, 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 perfection, the perfectionist streak in me and also the, the wisdom or the, the, what is it, the clarity that comes from, from a little time away. So, did, w- w- was this something that was? Oh no! Wait, I thought I finished this. Uh, I don't want to attack this again. Or w- did you have those moments where of, of clarity? Where like, yeah, actually, this this could be reworked. Um, I think it's always a, 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 a brief moment of dismay, but then um, as 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 you enter into the story and into the thinking that in, is involved in writing a story. There, there's, you know, the excitement of, of, of improving it and, and knowing that you're kind of a little closer to the final vision that you'd hoped for the thing. I mean, there's always a kind of platonic ideal that you set off with um, when things are very uh, bright and rosy at the start. And then you get into the story, and it couldn't be farther away from that thing. I mean, it's just simply the, the platonic ideal and the thing that you have on the page just simply do not have anything to do with one another and you work at it and you work at it you get a little closer you get a little closer and then at a certain point in time uh, either because other things become pressing or you've tapped out on your your ability with this the thing that you're working on you quit and you know it sort of reminds me of the old saying that uh, something that a piece of writing is never finished it's just abandoned and i think that's some fairly true you can't see it you can't see its potential anymore so uh, when I re-entered some of these stories, I realized that I was going to get 
uh, yet closer to the platonic ideal that I had in mind when I first conceived of them, and it became very thrilling. Um, but it wasn't without that uh, initial dismay. So there's um, there's a period about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through a work that um, I've heard a lot of writers talk about. Uh, Maureen McHugh calls it the, the dark night of the soul, where, where you feel the furthest from that platonic ideal. Um, and uh, it sounds like for these stories, at least you were able to climb out of that to the point where you could finish them. But now you have this uh, this revision process that sounds like it was in some ways very cathartic for you and a and a way of of bringing some light into that dark night yeah i mean i know that i know that moment it's kind of the moment when i think um the thing has probably shifted on you you know what you're writing is probably not the thing you started off writing the the initial quiver or impulse for telling the story has changed because of expediency or um, you know, um, compromise, <laughs> negotiation with yourself, uh, shifting interests or whatever the case may be, or just you're acting on your feet. Um, and then, as you say, three quarters of the way through, you hardly recognize it. You're not even really sure what it, what it is you started off trying to do. And you're plunged into, you know, uh, the despair of uncertainty and failure, and you're not really sure how to claw out. But, uh, you know, with a little bit of time and a little bit of diligence, these things do have a way of, of um, um, they have a way of showing you, how, showing you how to do it, uh, showing you the way. I mean, if you get a certain distance, um, you have something to work with. And so it may not be as pretty as the idea that you started off with, but it is functioning, it's breathing, it, and you have to kind of follow it through. So there's, there's, there's you know, a kind of fascination with the process itself, and, and that helps to get out of it as well. But ultimately, that was another, it was another opportunity when collecting them into, um, you know, a book to um, realize that potential. So let's jump into a couple of these uh, stories from the book. The title story uh, uh, involves the marriage of, of a childless couple. And we say in our review, you, you have a way with uh, uh, kind of an understated tragedy. And so tell us a little bit about what happens, happens to them uh, during this, this dinner party. They're having good friends come over and... Um the um, uh, man of the couple is not certain that that's such a good thing. Um, uh, you think he's probably just being a jerk, and um, he probably is being a jerk. I mean, he's very forthright about how little he cares for these people and his sense of their predictability and how perfectly um, down he has what will happen over the course of the evening and how bored he is already before they've even shown up. As you go a little further under the story, you realize that uh, underneath this, this uh, hostility um, is uh, the misfortune that they can't have kids, and these friends that are coming over are pregnant. So there is uh, an indication that the jerkiness that he's um, exuding is informed by uh, things out of his control. And then the, the, the couple never shows and they don't know why. Um, and so they debate for a little while longer, and it seems odd to him that his wife doesn't want to go find them and sort of 
accuse them of being bad friends or neglecting them or forgetting about them. And so he does. And uh, what he finds when he heads off um, is uh, the very opposite of predictability. So that story was nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award, which is uh, an award for dark fantasy and horror. And did you think you were writing a horror story? I thought more that I was writing a kind of nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, it, you know, I, what, I, what I'm really interested in uh, behind each one of these stories is how uh, stories work like dreams. And sometimes those dreams are very aspirational. You know, you, you want something and, and you try to achieve it. And then other times dreams are nightmares and they plunge you further and further into your fears and neuroses and, and uh, you know, the whole kit and caboodle of being human. And you uh, have to emerge from them kind of as the reader. My hope is you emerge from them feeling as you would have had witnessed the lucid dream. And in this case, um, it seems to me that, um, you know, this uh, protagonist, this man, the, 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 the character you're closest to in any, in any event, is uh, so sure of himself, so confident that the world that he inhabits and comments upon is the, wor- is the world in reality. And... Uh, the nightmare quality, I think, for anyone um, going about and having a radical readjustment to the way in which things are, um, is that he knows nothing and has been um, completely surprised and not in a, in, a, in, a, in a happy way by what these friends are doing and who they are and how they think of him. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a... Um, it's a comeuppance and it's a um, a revelation and it is probably you know fairly destructive to who he thinks he is and certainly to the the uh, to the marriage that he's in. So, uh, returning to the, our, our first topic conversation, rewriting was this one of the uh, pieces that uh, what, what kind of rewriting did you do on this one? It was fairly done. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, it was. It didn't. <laughs> uh, what, what uh, you know? I did some. I, I, get, I did what I guess I'd call blocking. I did some, some cleaning up of how I wanted the reader to see um, things, and so I needed to, to sort of, you know, that's that's an that's an area especially that I think benefits from from some distance and time away because you, you know, you come back and you say, well. What are they seeing here? What, what am I? What am I hoping that they're envisioning this, the reader when, when they're walking through this space? And it's easy to get off off track, and it's easy to sort of not fully comprehend. Uh, you know, you see things as the writer that the that the reader doesn't. Maybe you're assuming that the reader can see what you can see, and that doesn't always work out. So I was able to kind of go back and and just sort of do some housekeeping. That's a lovely way of putting it, but I, I like the term blocking too, which is a, a theater term. Uh, this idea of who stands where and making sure that everyone is visible and that the 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 words are intelligible and they make sense in the in the context. It's it's very visual. Yeah, it is, and I think that's where um, you you know I want to make sure that the reader sees what I see, and it is like a a deference to, you know, the experience of the story and also to that, this goes back a little bit to what I was saying about a dream. I mean, I, 
I want you to feel as if it is very, very real. And the more real I can make it, especially when there's a little left turn or, you know, a a kind of um, a bit of surreality as as there is in the title story, uh, the clearer you can see it, the more it feels very much like it's really happening in them. And the more you get a sense of, uh, this is weird, isn't it? I mean, I can see it so vividly, but it's weird that it's happening at all. And I think those two things... Um, you know, really, they 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 make a story. Um, they leave a, a longer, a, a more lasting impression on on the reader, and it's very important to me to defer to the reader in that regard, and to make sure that I'm doing, you know, the kind of the the basics to 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 convey that physicality. Um, one of your stories deals with screenwriting. That's the pilot. Tell us a little bit about that one. Um, it's about a guy who is uh, very anxious and uh, very much in his head. I was very interested at the time to try to figure out to what extent a successful story could be entirely uh, conveyed through the inner life of a character, the, the thinking, the gnawing, circling, looping thinking that an anxious person might do. Um, how much uh, could I tell a story through the sheer force of the, those thoughts and not lose the reader, not uh, keep the reader engaged, and, and, and then how, how much would I also have to then introduce the world? How much did I require, how much does a story require, any story, especially one so sunk down in interior thought, how much does it require in terms of information from the outside world and, and what the outside world is imposing upon this this sort of neurotic um, thinker. Uh, so I was, you know, I, that was kind of a, um, a technical issue, but also one that I think um, did justice to the way in which anxious people and uh, nervous people, certainly in a, in a, in a public place uh, or a public um, party, um, ex- how they experience the world, um, it does justice to that kind of experience, you know, being anxious and being um, um, eager to impress or whatever the case may be. And so I, this was very much about that. It's about a guy who, who wants to write a pilot, gets invited to a famous person's house and, 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 and ultimately goes to the party. But, you know, I mean, big things do happen in the story, but it's basically about his, his thinking uh, over the course of the night. And um, do you yourself have uh, any kind of background in writing for theater or film? I just I, I keep hearing through these these echoes of of theatricality in in several ways. Well, I think that the you know the uh, I don't have I, I write on occasion for, for for the movies, but not very well and not very successfully. Um, but the uh, the theatricality, the kind of uh, um, um, a layering of reality, of um, um, illusion, and of self-delusions, I think is important uh, to me, and something that I endeavor to make plain in the story, so that there is, um, you know, an understanding that the particular characters are mired in their own um, convictions, but those convictions are often at odds with the world, and I think that's very much the case, um, you know, uh, 
in these other entertainments, whether it be theater, the movies, or whatever, you, you know, you've got the one layer where you're just what a person is watching a film, and that film is a representative representative of of reality, and it, to whatever extent it touches reality is, you know, variable. But then you've also got within um, the film itself different, you know, uh, layers of of um, artificiality and illusion and uh, kind of dream. And so it's important to me in the in these stories to convey that as well because I think it also uh, informs character to a great de- great degree. I mean, uh, the ways in which people delude themselves and believe that they're acting in accordance with reality and the the jolts that they experience through a revelation that that's not the case is something that fascinates me as a human being and it always intrigues me when I see it um, in narrative form. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Joshua Ferris, author of The Dinner Party. So uh, you had mentioned before uh, when we were talking about the uh, the main character, the uh, title story, uh, The Dinner Party. Um, let's talk a little bit about your ma- male characters. You know, many of them are unlikable and some, as you said, like the main character, are jerks. Um, tell us about how you write men. Um, I think the question that I'm very interested in whenever I'm writing about one man or another, uh, and you know they are, have a, a a kind of they're on a kind of sliding scale, I think, in terms of um, likability. Some of them are deeply uh, irredeemable, um, and others, uh, I think, genuinely want to change their lives and become better human beings. But the question is always, to what extent is change possible? Um, and uh, is not only the lives that they are leading illusory, but is the notion that people change for the better also a kind of entrenched human illusion that nevertheless we need to believe in because the contrary news would be just simply too dismaying. So it's part, I suppose, provocation to try to understand the, um, the extent to which this frequently um, um, engaged fairy tale in fiction that we have about the human capacity for change is um, a, a, a real function of the world, and to what extent it is a kind of um, fata morgana in which we need to believe that it's possible. We've had a lot of discussion over the last couple of weeks about the extent to which the, the men in power in this country are capable of change. And it astonishes me when time and again 
people believe the change is right around the corner, and it never materializes. Uh, and it seems as if that, that lack of change keeps deflating people who hope for something better. Um, but, you know, if they were careful students of history, you would see there is no change. Change isn't happening. It, it is not forthcoming from those people that we hope it to be forthcoming from. So it, these 11 stories, to some extent, are, are variations on the question of to what extent the men at the center of them have the capacity for change, how much they want change, how much change uh, they are able to, uh, uh, to envision for themselves, and how much change they actually enact. There's a story called A Night Out in which um, you have a, 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 an adulterer whose affair has just come to light, who's trying to save his marriage, and uh, they've had a fight. Uh, his wife runs away from him. He has to meet his in-laws for dinner. Um, the in-laws want to know what's happened, because clearly the daughter's not with them. They're concerned for their daughter. What's happened? And he says, he sort of clears his throat and takes a moment and says, you know, a butt out. It's not, not none of your business. And they look at one another and they say, you know, that's, that's right. And at that moment in time, it would have been, I think, um, it would have been fine if I had left it at that, as the writer. But it was very important to me not to let this guy get off the hook. And what he does when, he, when they back away, his in-laws back away and say, okay, that's, that's fine, we'll, leave it. we'll, we'll, we'll butt out. He, he then says, here's the reason why she's run away. Here's the cause of the fight. And it's a lie. And it shows that this guy has been incapable from the very beginning, basically, uh, despite the fact that he might express regret at what he's done and uh, and people aren't mad at him, uh, he's unreformed. And he's not even aware that he's lying. It's just he knows that that's what he wants to do because he wants to get on these people's good side. And I think that's at a moment in, in time where you realize, reading that story, that I'm coming down very hard on... Um, this man's particular self-delusions. Um, there is another type of story in here, a kind of template that shows a different type of man who wants to change his life radically and attempts to do it. So I think that they work on this continuum um, in terms of my own preoccupations as a man, as an artist, and as you know, kind of an observer of the world. How much are men really capable of changing, and, and why, why do they want to change? What prompts them to, to want to change, and how successful are they? So I'd, I'd like to talk to a little bit about another story, the, uh, uh, the valetudinarian, uh, about a uh, recent widower, widower in Florida who's um, offered the services of someone. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about the title? Uh, the Valedictorian is about an old guy who's uh, visited one day by a prostitute who wants him to take a Viagra and, and have a party. And he's, uh, he is the Valedictorian. He's someone who believes, he's always someone who's a little sickly, and he thinks death is right around the corner. So he's a bit of a complainer and, and, um, and a woe-is-me kind of guy. And uh, along comes this woman who convinces him to do this radical thing that he wouldn't ordinarily do. And... Um, Consequences ensue because he has a bad heart. 
He ends up at the hospital, but he also is 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 uh, sort of prompted to change his life. He says, you know, without her, he had, he had been a dead man for many years, and had she not shown up at his door, he would have died a dead man. Um, and I think that's just sort of uh, the way old guys get. They get kind of uh, sad for themselves. They become self-pitying. Um, and it's, you know, it's no, it's, it's no accident that opportunity has to come to him. You know, he, it has to knock on his door. He's not really capable of breaking free and changing his life from the inside. So when it does, though, uh, and he recognizes uh, what he's been missing and, 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 and denying um, himself through lack of courage and stasis and old age, uh, he does change. He does make an effort to change, and it, it seems as if he's really expanding um, out into the world. You'd mentioned being hard on your characters, but in this case, it sounds like you, you gave this one a gift, that that character could have just sat there alone in his room forever and, as you say, died a dead man, which is a, a very evocative phrase. Um, but uh, but instead, you, you sent uh, this uh, this person to come and knock on his door and say, there's, there's more than this. Um, and that, that seems very kind of you. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't because of his age, to be honest. I mean, I think that when I'm writing a story about somebody who's of my age, you know, a contemporary of mine, I seem to be a lot more damning. Um, in, 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 in part because it seems as if, <laughs> you know, and, and these are, listen, I mean, these are, these are, I'm talking about, I'm thinking about relatives, I'm thinking about friends, I'm thinking about um, any number of people. I have an enormous amount of compassion and love for these people. I have enormous, uh, you know, self-love. I, 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 want, I, I want everyone to be happy. I want the good things in life for all of the people that I know, but I also see an enormous amount of self-deception. And it... Um, uh, kind of it kind of um, you know I suppose it provokes me to write truthfully about the ways in which um, people you know my age um, and and I'm not just talking about those alive now I'm talking about what what my what my parents were like when they were my age I'm, I'm thinking about you know any of the complications that arise throughout your 30s say those 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 problems are often self-induced, and they don't, they don't often get, I think, spoken of truthfully. In the, val- in the case of the valetudinarian, I'm, I'm far more interested in the fact that the only thing that's next for this guy is dying. And it would seem to be sort of gratuitous, gratuitously cruel to, to not allow for some possibility of... Um, expansion even at such an old age so this is your first collection of short stories you've written three novels um what's the difference for you writing process wise between writing short fiction and working on something longer you know the story comes a story idea comes along and just kind of like pokes at me you know it provokes me to stop what i'm doing stop everything do this thing um, and 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 it's it's kind of a more potent dose, it, both in the in the concentrated idea and in the actual uh, writing of it. Um, you know, it's 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 a more intense experience. I think with novels, the there's a there's a looser 
structure and uh, you know less um, less pressure on each and every page um, to get things right because you just can't afford much um, you know excess in a story and the novel is just a more sort of capacious beast and can withstand it if it's done correctly and so there's just less I think less intensity around it and more forgiveness and improvisation and uh, searching and you know a kind of um, uh, day in day out discovery of the possibilities of the idea that you've had to, uh, in mind for this novel so you know it's it's just um, it's the same writing it's the same writer and it's the same day-to-day um, application you know kind of direct intense directed thought but it's just a different sprint. We've been talking with Joshua Ferris. You can find his collection, The Dinner Party, in stores right now. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about what's coming up at Book Expo and BookCon. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kim Phillipsine, the author of Fear City, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us what's on tap for BEA. Hello, Jim. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Hi, Rose. Hello, Jim. Nice to have you on the show, as always. So, uh, suddenly, BEA is almost here. Um, It feels like it's kind of snuck up on us this year. Tell us uh, what you're looking forward to. Yeah, well, okay. Well, uh, two weeks from today, we'll be in the midst of it all. Mm -hmm. And I think um, you may have alluded to this in some earlier shows. This year, the show is a little bit different. Uh, technically, it's May 31st through June 4th, and that comprises of two parts this year. It's BEA, you know, no, it's not BEA, it's Book Expo. Right. <laughs> they dropped the A from, oh. from Book Expo oh, America, right. so uh, it is not BEA, yeah. it is Book Expo Good and BookCon. Yes, we've uh, gone out of our way to, not, well, we still call it BEA, but we write Book Expo. Old habits die hard. Yeah, Are there true. still people calling it ABA, or, or have they, <laughs> <laughs> have they uh, all disappeared now? <laughs> I could say something. Um, But yeah, so the idea is to, you know, continue to try to uh, ramp up and uh, emphasize BookCon a little more, Mm -hmm. which will be on Thursday and Friday. And that is the consumer facing part of the show. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. While Book Expo is the uh, B2B side. So this year they are having uh, two show, two floor days on Thursday and Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past years they've had at least three, and even in Chicago last year it's been two and a half. Right. Uh, so this is a new configuration that nobody knows exactly how it's gonna how it's gonna work out. Um, the goal is for the read folks who put it on. They think they can help publishers get more done in. Uh, um, a little less time by some other things they implemented. One thing was having a stricter vetting process about the non-publishers who were going to show up. I mean, they always let booksellers and librarians and other retailers are always there, but there's always been other self-publishers, would-be agents, Mm. would-be anything else, authors are there. So they've tried to limit that a little bit. Um, We'll see how that works. 
And instead of a uh, third day of a show floor, they've emphasized um, putting more stuff on, meet more meetings, more panels, uh, some celebrations on the Wednesday. For instance, the ABA will have um, its celebration of book selling mm -hmm. luncheon on Wednesday when they've had that you know, during the show. So they're trying to have more of the events that might take people off the show floor on Wednesday. Um, you know, at that uh, at that luncheon, we'll be we'll be handing out our uh, bookstore of the year and our rep of the year awards. Which, if we haven't said, um, Wild Rumpus in uh, Minneapolis, the children's bookstore there, was our bookstore of the year. Great. And Andrew Corsi, who is a sales rep for Harper, is our rep of the year. So we'll be happy to see them at, at the luncheon. And it looks like there could be some political overtones to this uh, this year's show, shockingly enough. No, uh, one, no one's surprised. <laughs> I think uh, literally uh, every event that's gone on since Mr. Trump got inaugurated has had uh, some political aspect to it. There is a, a Pan America panel, uh, I think will be on the Thursday, uh, mm -hmm. we'll be looking at free speech issues in the, in the current climate. But uh, a surprise... Uh, new guest author that they announced last week is Hillary Clinton will be there on Thursday starting at 5.30 to 6.30 uh, she'll be promoting her newest book coming from Simon & Schuster which does not have a title yet wow. and it's described something where as a memoir with essays in it hmm. so I'm not sure if anybody really knows what it's going to be about although SNS has said that uh, she will talk about the campaign well, so that, seeing, wow. seeing her return to the Javits Center must be pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty emotional for some folks who were there with her on election night. But I hadn't thought about that connection. Maybe we'll ask her. Yeah, I, I, had, I, had, I had friends who were there. Um, and so I'm just when I think of Hillary Clinton at the Javits, that's what I think of. But it's, it's nice to see her return under happier circumstances. Right. And she hasn't done too many live events. I, I don't you know, they haven't really said what form this is going to take. I think she's going to be in conversation conversation with somebody, but they haven't said who that's going to be. Could very well be her editor or maybe Carolyn Reedy or somebody. Sure. I don't think it's going to be Jack Taper from CNN or, or, <laughs> or, or Sean Hannity. So, and I know this is already sold out. Well. Or, or is it? I mean, and who is able to go? Uh, well, Hillary. Well, Hillary, uh, I don't know, without getting too much in the weeds again, I know they said it's sold out, but it's supposed to be a first-come, first-served basis. Okay. So I don't know exactly what that means. They haven't right. really uh, finalized their plans on the press access type of stuff. Right. I mean, I doubt they're going to be letting the media ask her a lot of questions. Right. Or if any questions at all. Um, so, so well, it'd right. be exciting, though, to have her. I mean, it certainly has given uh, the whole event a jolt. Yeah. Um, yeah so that'll be good. And then, you know, it really is, the whole show is, you know, about um, authors, meeting authors. Um, Wednesday, you know, we talked about having more panels. There's the Buzz panel. It's set to go, and that's where different editors uh, come on and talk about some books that they think are going to be big in the next year or so. So that's always a highlight. And then there are lots and lots of um, autographing opportunities. Uh, let's see who we can find who's going to be there. Claire Massoud will be there for her new novel, The Burning Girl. Mm -hmm. Pamela Paul, who's at the Times now, we're talking about her memoir. Um, can't have a show without uh, some sports figures. Uh, Mike Tyson mm, will be great. there autographing uh, 
iron ambition. Yep. Um, so so you, I think you kind of get the idea of uh, the types of yeah. authors and celebrities that are going to be there. And uh, one thing I want to put in a plug for is that at BookCon, um, I'm going to be joining a bunch of other folks, including our own Adam Boratz from Book Life, to give a series of talks on uh, information for self-published authors. So right, that's, that's great. Yeah, doing. I think we're doing that with Ingram, mm-hmm, I believe. Think so. Yeah, so and, that's BookCon. Yep. And uh, and that's going to be part of BookCon, and I think it's going to be really exciting. It's it's been nice to see Book Expo and BookCon kind of embrace indie authors as part of the publishing ecosystem system. Right. Yes. And I think it's probably a good move by Book Expo to move it to more a little to BookCon where mm-hmm. there's, you know, they can meet the meet their potential buyers. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, you know, one of the highlights, though, of BookCon will be um, Margaret Atwood's going to be there because right. um, obviously The Handmaid's Tale uh, has drawn a lot of new publicity since it was on Hulu, I believe. So she's going to be talking about that on a panel. And the, you know the main audience for book kind has always been what they call millennial females um and that's still still who they think the target audience is so you know uh, a lot of young adult authors will be there as well i mean kevin hart's going to be there a lot of youtubers are going to be there connor franta mm-hmm. <laughs> i think the only youtuber i actually know but then and then an attempt to broaden it out a bit dan brown is going to be on a panel because mm. he's got his a new book coming out this fall so i mean it'll be something for everyone uh for all five days and who's the keynote at uh book expo at book expo there really isn't a keynote per se on that wednesday there are um a lot of panels in the morning but there's right. no there's no star i mean there's a couple of panels devoted to uh how to use uh, data in the industry mm-hmm. which is something i think i'll be going to right the audio publishers association on wednesday it's another wednesday event uh they have their annual conference uh usually in association with book expo and this year they sold out uh 400 people will be wow. there and you know and one of the the reasons is hey we may have touched on this again in earlier shows digital audio yeah is so hot and that's certainly be one of the topics they're looking at and right. so they have they have some really good panels uh, set up um you know there'll be some surveys they'll talk about some results of what's going on and some consumer surveys and you know how can they keep the digital audio uh, train moving forward great sounds good well, Jim, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it, even though I do still feel like, how is it <laughs> yeah. the end of May already? Right. And, uh, and and Book Expo time come around again. Yeah, and we can't forget the parties. No, definitely it's, not. It's lots. So. so there'll be a few of those, yeah, too. Yeah, a few. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you there. All right. Thanks, Thanks so lot, much, Jim. Jim. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 